Let me give you a few places, other places to turn this morning so you'll be a little quicker on the draw. Find James chapter 2. Put something there. Once you find that, John chapter 11. And then finally back to Romans 12. James 2, John 11. Romans chapter 12. I know we prayed for Miss Burma, but let me remind you to continue in prayer for her. Very difficult season of life. A little over a year she lost Eldon, and then she lost her oldest son, and now she lost, uh, it seems to me, her dearest brother. She's very close to Junior. Uh, of course, he was a very faithful man, loved the Lord, so she kept reaffirming to me, it's a celebration, it's a celebration, but she would do it with her bottom lip shaking and a tear rolling out of her eyes, so we understand that, but just keep her in your prayers, please. Also, Sonia's mom took a turn for the worse, uh, so please be in prayer for Sonia Priest's mother. Uh, Brother James is telling me before service she's uh, got something else going on, so please keep her in your prayers. All right, Romans chapter 12. I want to keep bringing you back. I think I'll finish 12 this morning. That's the plan anyway. We'll see how it goes. But I don't want you to separate anything that we're talking about from the idea of worship. Romans chapter 12, he has finally turned from the gospel. But if you'll notice at the very end of verse 1 of chapter 12, he's talking about us presenting our bodies as living, holy sacrifices, which is acceptable to God. And then he goes on, this is your spiritual service of worship, which I translate, this truly is worship. So all of 12 takes the shape of trying to form in our thoughts of what worship really looks like. And it's a very serious matter because if you look at the very first words of verse 1, he says, I urge you. He's not commanding like a law, but he's very strongly exhorting us to take up these things because they are in essence what worship is truly about. And so we understand that, you know, and we've talked so much about this the last several months about fixing, if you will, the idea of worship. We've talked about order of worship, and I so much appreciate it. I don't know if you guys have picked up on the flow yet, but we go from confession right to the Lord's table, and I don't think there is a better flow that you can find. I mean, we go from confessing our sins to partaking of the broken body and the shed blood that paid for our sins. And I really appreciate us being able to do that and recognize what God has done for us in forgiving us of our sins. So that's a good thing. And we talk about the songs that we sing, right? We want those words to be faithful to Scripture. We've talked about our attitude, and I love coming in here with brokenness and repentance and, and coming before God that way. Just like humbly on our knees, we crawl before the Lord, knowing that we're sinners in desperate need of His grace. So I really appreciate our attitude. But after studying Romans 12, I'm left with this thought, if you want to fix your worship, you'll fix your love. If you want to fix worship, you will fix love. And that's what Paul gets to when we get all the way over into verse 9 where he says, and there's no verb in it, right? Love unhypocritical. 
And so that's what he's trying to teach us about. Again, all the way through 12, this is worship. At the heartbeat of genuine worship is genuine love. And he begins in verse 2, very important thoughts for us. The way that you get to unhypocritical love is having your mind changed. Because we love like the world. We've been conformed to the image of the world. And so when you think about the world's love, they love what they agree with. They love what they accept. They love what they like. They love what they approve of. And they hate what they disapprove of. And what is it that they hate? They hate the will of God that's communicated in the Word of God. I believe Brother Eddie mentioned that in his prayer. The attacks that we suffer in our day is upon the Word of God, which is the expressed will of God. That's what the world hates. But the transformed mind, we think very differently about the, the will of God. Notice again verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that... What does it say? We may prove what the will of God is, and we see the will of God as good, acceptable, and perfect. And so that's what we love. If I could draw all of our love down to one thing, we love the will of God. And so that's what we want our lives to be about. That's what we want to be able to discern. That's what we want to walk in. And so Paul has just been working through this attitude or these attitudes that love has in order that it might be genuine. And again, I'll take you for the last time to this thought. The first thing that he brings up is this business of evil and good. Genuine love hates evil and genuine love loves good. Think about God. Evil has nothing to do with God. Sin has nothing to do with the Holy One. That is separate from Him. It has nothing of His character. Therefore, God hates what is evil. And He is so gracious to communicate to us in His Word what is evil. But see, God loves what is good because He Himself is the essence of goodness. God alone is good, Jesus says. And so God loves all that is good. And so when we think about taking up this unhypocritical love, this genuine love, we understand that we're loving and hating just like God. We hate evil and sin and rebellion, and we love everything that is good. And so love, first and foremost, has this attitude of a moral quality to it. Second thing we talked about, the attitudes of love, it has a particular attitude toward believers. And this is primarily where we camped out last week. As far as it goes between me and you, we're absolutely devoted to one another. Absolutely devoted, come what may. Not only that, but we lead the way in honoring one another. And the elders and I talked about this in our meeting last week. We outdo one another bragging on each other. We just find the nicest and most encouraging things to say about one another. We don't dwell on negatives. We know they're there. We know the struggles are there. But hey, we're not, we're not, we're not going to camp there. We're going to camp on one another's Christ-likeness and magnify those things. We're going to contribute to the needs of the saints. All these are this genuine love attitude toward believers. But they're also, we talked about this particular love attitude toward the Lord. We sat down here for a while. You don't have the right kind of love toward the Lord if you're lazy. If you're lazy in the things of God, then you're not loving like God has called you to love. 
We're diligent in, in serving. We're fervent in spirit. And when it comes to hope, we're filled with joy. When it comes to sufferings, we just stay put and remain because we know God is sovereign. And when it comes to prayer, what are we? What was the word we said? Busy. We're just busy people. We're very busy praying to the Lord. But there's two more things that Paul talks about in Romans 12 in regard to this, these attitudes of this unhypocritical and genuine love, and they both deal with people outside of Christ. There are three particular attitudes that he takes up that we ought to have in unhypocritical love just toward men generally. And then he winds up dealing with not general men, but men who hate us and reject us and despise us. And he says, there's an attitude that God has toward those people, and you've got to have that same attitude to model his unhypocritical love. Okay? So let's walk through these this morning. The first attitude in regard to all men generally comes in verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now obviously this applies in the context of the body more than anything. Obviously that means as a body of Christ, we rejoice when part of the body rejoices and we weep with those within the body who are weeping. And if I could applaud you and not dishonor God, I would do that right now. You guys do such a good job at sharing life with one another. I'll start out with weeping. I guess you always start out on the negative side of things, but that's okay. We'll end up on the rejoicing side of things. But we wept hard with Miss Burma last year. And I've told you more times or several times, I still remember the last time Eldon was in here, he's sitting in his wheelchair right back over there with his reading glasses down like this and his Bible open in his lap. Last time I got to worship with Eldon. And we all as a church suffered through that. And we still feel for her pain, even her pain right now. We're still weeping with Miss Burma as she buries her brother today, right? You guys have done such a good job of joining each other in the experiences of life. Others of you have scared us to death, Lexi and Cody. And I hope and I think we've done a good job in being scared with y'all. We should have been. July 3rd was terrifying. Thought we'd lost one of our family members, you know. And we're not so busy with life that we just walk past those things and say that quaint little, I'll be praying for you and never call it to mind again. We don't do that around here. We, we share in those moments. And when I think about what these two over here are going through, I think, well, they did last week applauded the church for sharing in their current experiences as Eddie and Sandra walk through these things. This is what this passage is about. We've rejoiced over so many babies born and so many adopted kids around here. We have shared in the joy. Uh, somebody had a birthday party not too long ago. Caden, did you see a few church members there enjoying that time with you? That's the fulfillment of this passage. We've done a good job. And as these kids become teenagers, I will weep with you. And Rob, when your daughters start dating, even though you made fun of me during that time, I will weep with you when they do. It's sad. But this is not just talking about the body of Christ. This is, has a general tone to it as well. 
We rejoice with those who are in joy and we weep with those who are weeping for our common man. We're not so busy with our own lives that we ignore what's going on around us. To be Christian is to be sympathetic, compassionate, active, not indifferent toward the experiences of any man. We're always aware of what's going on with our fellow man in order that we might join them in that experience and share part of that with them. Certainly in the sorrow, we can carry the load along with them, but in the joy, we should genuinely rejoice with them in their experiences. I don't care if a couple knows the Lord or not, having a baby is an awesome thing. It is a blessing from God, whether they understand that, accept that or not, and it's certainly a thing to be joyful about, right? Certainly, our Lord Jesus joined us in rejoicing and weeping. And that's one of the things that I want to remind you of this morning. Turn with me to John chapter 11, and I want to point you to a moment that's absolutely profound in the life of our Lord. John chapter 11. The scene is a funeral. You're very familiar with it. Verse 33, Jesus is with the sisters at the tomb of Lazarus. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, He, God, was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. In verse 35, how did God respond? God cried. You ever sat on that one? I know we joke about that being the shortest verse of the Bible and that we all have memorized. But do you understand what's going on there? God is crying. And of course, the excuse follows that is not right, it at least doesn't catch the fullness of it. Notice what the Jews say. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. Now never in Scripture do we take the commentary of the Jews as what's right. And they get close, but they missed it. It's not see how he loved him. It's see how God loves. I can't get over this God when I was in this. I was share this with Nathan. He joins us in our experiences to the fullest extent. Not only did He become like us in every way physically, He became with us in every way emotionally. In fact, in every way save one was our God like us. And in that way, He replaced us and took the punishment from us. Save that God allowed Himself to feel what we felt. This is some more God. Oh, it's not the death. He knows fully what He's about to do. I would have been so excited that I would have looked past their sorrow and past their pain. I probably would have said some sort of joke as I walked up to the tomb and shouted His name. Dried up! Y'all about to get over this would have been my response. You forgot who I am. Come on out, boy. 
that's not Him. God with the power of life and death, tears roll down His cheeks. And we ought not be able to get over that. That's exactly how we should respond to whomever we are with and their experiences of life. Either their tears of sorrow or their tears of joy. But because we are our Lord's and belong to Him and want to glorify Him, we need to learn to stop being so consumed with our own experiences and learn to be consumed with the experiences of those around us. Feel what they feel. Do what they do in regard to their responses so they'll feel us trying desperately to be a part of their lives. I'll leave you with a, a comment. It was profound, and I don't usually do this, but Hodge said this, How much like Christ is the man who feels the sorrows and joys of others as if they were his own? And that's exactly where we need to be. This is unhypocritical love. This is genuine love. And it only comes from a transformed mind. Second thing. These are all profound when you think about Jesus. Look at verse 16. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty or arrogant or prideful of mind but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Stop thinking so much about yourself. If I can summarize that last phrase. And associate with the lowly. Now let me take you to the conformed mind, the mind that you were born with, the mind that you're constantly being tra tra trained to be like, not transformed, but conformed to. It's the worldly mind that thinks along the lines of classes of people, economic classes, social classes, caste in some countries. It's prideful. It's self-centered. It's all about power, position, and recognition. It's all about you lifting up your head higher than the fellow man. That's how it goes with the conformed mind. But the transformed mind thinks very differently about mankind. Let me tell you where it starts. This is how a man who thinks like Christ, this is how his mind begins. All men are created in the image of God. I remember like it was yesterday. We were in Guatemala riding in a bus during rainy season. And when it's rainy season there, man, it, it rains. They've got concrete ditches on both sides of the road just to try to do something with all the water that falls from the sky. And there's a man in the street that probably went about 80 pounds because he'd literally drunk himself almost to death. And he's curled up in a ball and it's just coming a massive flood on his almost naked body, and we're riding by on a bus heading to our hotel. And I remember that because the Lord reminded me in that He was created in my image. Therefore, we think of that man entirely differently. We think of him from a glorious perspective. 
We think of Him from a valued perspective. We think of Him from a worth perspective because that man was created in the image of God just like every man that's ever been born. Not only that, but the transformed mind moves on into in Christ. And you don't have to turn there, but as far as notes go, Galatians 3.28 says this in Christ... There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So in Christ, it's absolutely flat ground. There is no one standing one half inch above anyone else. There is no heads lifted, there is no chest puffed out. We are all level at the foot of Calvary in Christ and let me tell you who would have really struggled with that. And that's the church at Corinth. Because on the same pew, you would have slave and slave owner worshiping the Lord. And we were talking about this a couple of weeks ago. And God poured out gifts during that time uniquely so that they could hear from the word of the Lord. And someone would be gifted a gift to prophesy or to speak. And if I know my Lord, and if I had to guess it would have been the slave who had been given the unique, more unique gifts so that the slave owner would understand his place as being equal with that man. I'd have loved to have been a fly on the wall, but I'd also love to have not been a part of that place. It was a wreck. But I'd have loved to have seen that church wrestle with the reality that we are all one in Jesus Christ, period. So when we think about a transformed mind and this business of associating with the lowly, oh, this ought to be the easiest thing for us possible because we understand the gospel. But what we don't want to do, and I believe this to be a wrong teaching in the church, as some Christians are told from some pulpits that we ought to be colorblind and not see to the distinctions. Listen, God is glorified by distinction. God is glorified by race and color. God is glorified by male and female. That's the way He created us. Therefore, He is glorified by that. And when I thought about this, I thought about Revelation 5, where John writes, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. There's going to be a whole lot of diversity when we get there. And it's going to be recognized and it's going to be celebrated and we're all going to join the Lord in worship. It's going to be awesome. So don't ever let anybody try to remove the diversity that God's created or remove this idea that we somehow need to be colorblind. Don't you dare. Because... God has done things as He has seen fit and therefore they are good and we glory in them. But I want to take you to this word associate. Man, we, we don't have a good English word where it says associate with the lowly. It literally can be translated, one, one lexicon does, to join the company of. Associate is so far from the meaning of that. We are to join the company of. To be a part of. And because we have the idea of lowly, one commentator translated the word condescend. Which I think that's absolutely awesome when we set our eyes on Jesus and try to consider this passage in light of our Savior. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty, but associate or condescend with the lowly. 
Do we see Christ doing that? Let me just read this to you for the sake of time. This was one of the most significant moments that I see Jesus physically doing this. Luke chapter, 12, or Luke chapter 5, verse 12. While Jesus was in one of the cities, behold, there was a man covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and he begged him, saying, Lord, if you're willing, you, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and what? Touched him. Joined him. We don't call that he associated with it. Man hadn't been touched. And every time I come to this man, I talk about this man I did when we walked through the gospel. Luke, you do realize this man hadn't been touched by his wife? This man hadn't been touched or hugged by his kids. There had been no little sweet, wet lips on his cheek in a long time. He had been kicked out of his community. He had been kicked out of his church. And he was without any association but here comes a man that will join him in where he is, so much so that he would lay his hands upon him unashamedly, without fear. You see why I don't like the word associate? Don't you dare estimate yourself more than anyone else. Who are you fooling? Not after what Christ has done for us. And when I translate that word condescend, oh, we got to go higher. Do you realize where he was before he came? Do you realize that he was enthroned in glory, being worshipped by angels, and he condescended to the lowly? In fact, Philippians 2, to the lowest place as a slave and died? And you're going to look down on somebody? When God saved you by joining you where you were and you won't join somebody else where they were? Oh, let's not contradict our Savior. Let's not contradict the gospel. And let's understand that we join whomever, wherever, because we understand what God has done for us. To take it back to physical things, just so I won't waste your time and turn into James. Turn to James chapter 2 with me real quick. James hits this more than anybody does in the New Testament. But I do want you to understand how serious this sin is of not associating or joining with those who the Bible describes as lowly. James 2, look, notice verse 1. My brethren, James 2, 1. Do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and you say, sit here in a good place, and you say to that poor man, stand over here or sit down here by my feet, have you not made a distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith? 
and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those whom he loved or who love him. But you've dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you've been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law of Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. I probably told you this before, before I go on to verse 18. Hugh Phillips was a deacon, and most of y'all know his son, Ben. Um, we were going through this passage at that church at a particular time, and it was a really fancy church when I was young. I don't ever remember a man not being in a tie. It's that kind of church. But Hugh dressed up like a homeless man, didn't shave all weekend. Knowing Hugh, he probably didn't bathe either. He walked in, couldn't recognize him. Sat on the back row through the entire service, got up and left sometime after it was over, and not one single person in the whole church ever walked his way or said one word to him. And the preacher brought that up next Sunday while we were in this passage. Do I think that of y'all? I have never seen that with all honesty and integrity. I have never seen that in this church. But be careful because the world conforms you into a particular image of where you think a little bit more of yourself than someone else. But God says, don't you dare. If God would become a man, do you think there's something that you can't condescend to in order to join? Don't you dare sin against the Lord. Verse 18. One more. We join them in their experiences, whether they're rejoicing or weeping, we join their company no matter who they are, where they're at. In verse 18, he says this in regard to all men, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace. Be at peace with all men. Now, let me tell you, as a Christian, peace is a huge deal. In fact, if you're back in Romans, look over real quick at 1533 with me. Notice how Paul begins the conclusion, really, of the letter. Notice what he says there. Now, the God of peace. Now, we'll come back to it in verse 20. Notice 1620. The God of Peace. And the reason he keeps calling him that is because that is who he is. He is a God of peace. He is the God of peace. And so you can go from Old Testament to New Testament finding out just how important peace is. It is one of our outstanding, outshining attributes that needs to be displayed in our life. We are to be at peace with all men, not just those who agree with us, not just those who are Christian, but we are to pursue peace with all men. This is consistent with every apostolic writer. Listen to some of these guys. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5.13, live in peace with one another. The writer of Hebrews, whoever he is, Hebrews 12.14, Pursue peace with all men. James, the Lord's brother. 
For where there is jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom which is from above is first pure, then peaceable. Listen to Peter. 1 Peter 3.8. Peter really, really makes the point. Peter writes, to sum it up, and this is kind of the end of his letter, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil. He must do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Implied, the face of the Lord is against those who do not pursue peace. Here in Romans, go back to chapter 5, verse 1, so I can remind you of how precious peace is as the children of God. One quick verse and we'll go right back. Hopefully you have this one memorized. This is one of the highlights of the book. Romans 5.1 Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have what? Peace. With who? God. How? Through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now God says, you see what I did for you, where you were, Therefore, I say to you, you pursue peace because I'm the one who pursued it and accomplished it for you. Now you're going to do that for all men. Peace in our homes, peace in our churches, peace in all of our relationships, peace with our families, peace with our neighbors, peace in our town, peace in the world. Strife and division is the work of the devil who gives him a foothold in whatever relationship it is that you don't have peace. I bet all you guys would say amen if I asked you, is there anything that hurts you worse than having strife and division with your bride? Nothing keeps me up at night like that. Nothing makes me reckless at work and unconcentrated, or whatever that word would be. Nothing's worse than when me and Paige get sideways. It is awful. Now let me tell you what second. Those kids. Wait till they get older. And wait till they get sideways. And you don't have peace with them, and you think you're going to sleep. No. Not at all. Let's go a little further. Church. This church was like many churches 10 years ago. There was a whole lot of division in the house. And nothing hurts worse. And the Lord's like, what are y'all doing? Do you not realize you're my kids? Do you not realize who you are and you're going to argue and maintain strife and division? Are you kidding me? 
after I've made peace with you, can you not make peace with one another? You see how important this is? This is a manifestation and a declaration of the gospel when we pursue peace. So you need to place yourself in a position to be willing to be taken advantage of. And I'll start with the man. Be willing to let your wife take advantage of you because it's better to have peace than you to have your way. And wife, I'll go with you. It's better to make peace than to make your argument. It's better to have peace in the church than to have your way on the pew. God treasures peace more than He treasures your way. And so that's why He says, as far as it depends on you, you make peace. And I'll tell you right now, if you're a Christian, it is on you. And if you say, well, you don't know what they've done, I don't care because I know what I did to my Savior before He made peace with me through Christ. So grow up, let go of the excuses, and if you're in Christ, it's on you. And if there's two Christians going at it, then let it be on you there too. And be willing to be put down or to not win the argument just in order that God might be glorified with the peace. Now if you'll notice the word if, let me give you two outs and only two outs because 18 begins with the if. Here's your two ifs. Conflict is inevitable. Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. That doesn't mean you throw up your arms in the air and go, oh well, not going to win this one. He didn't. He did raise his hands. But He raised them in one. We don't give up. We seek it and we pursue it knowing we may never achieve it. Therefore, it says, if, if possible. And don't let your possibility be exhausted with one try. What is that? Let it be exhausted with a lifetime of pursuing peace. And then it wasn't possible because I don't have any more time. Second thing is, peace cannot be achieved at the expense of truth. There's some that cross this line. Many in the church today cross this line, peace at all expense. No, 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 it does not say that. Peace with God was not without expense. Peace with God cost the life of His Son. Therefore, we can't set down truth in order to have peace. We can pursue it. We can pray for it. We can plead with it. But at the end of the day, what is right is right and what is wrong is wrong. And the moment that we think we need to love evil in order to have peace, you've left unhypocritical love. See the balance to this? You can't get things out of balance. And so we have to understand truth has got to be truth. But when I allow truth to be truth, I can pursue peace to the end of the world because they might just come around to the truth and then we'll truly have peace. Last thing, and this is the hardest thing, 
But I would suggest to you this morning, this is what I'm, I've come to believe. This is the most important thing. This particular kind of love has to have a particular attitude towards its enemies. And I'll say it again, this teaching is throughout the pages of Scripture. This is not just a New Testament thing, okay? But I will remind you of the teaching of our Lord when He came on the Sermon on the Mount. You're very familiar with this. Listen to what the Lord says when He taught. Matthew 5, 43, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I'm sorry. You've heard that it says, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Verse 44, But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Let me say that again. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And then He says this, in case you didn't get it. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have exactly? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I take you back. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now that's what the Lord said, but is that what the Lord did? What did he say, Stand, or hanging rather, before his persecutors? Father, forgive them. How about that? How about that as a display of loving your enemies? God himself desired the very utmost good for his persecutors by asking and requesting for their forgiveness. How about the gospel? Let's look at that and see if we find it there. Go back to Romans 5. And then I'll break down these three passages fairly quickly and we'll be done. I appreciate your patience, but I do want to finish chapter 12. Go back to Romans 5. Look at verse 6. Now, I want you to notice as I go through here, four words that describe us, and they advance, okay? I'll begin in verse 6. Romans 5, verse 6, this is the gospel, and this is a description or helping us understand love for our enemies. For while we were still, first word, what is it? Helpless. At the right time, Christ died for the, second word, ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare to die. But God demonstrates, notice how love is tied to this, God demonstrates His own love, His love, His kind of love toward us in that while we were yet, third word, sinners. He goes back, Christ died for us. Verse 9, much more then, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were, fourth word, what is it? Enemies. We were reconciled to God. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His 
life. Let me tell you why I'm convinced this morning this is the most important one that we get right. Because if God had not had enemies, we would not have understood the depth of His love. If there had not been darkness, we would not have noticed the light. If there had not been rebellious sinners at the foot of the cross, we would not have seen His holiness in all of its grandeur and glory. Therefore, without enemies, you and I don't understand the depth of God's love. Because while we were enemies, Christ loved us and died for us. Therefore, we begin to comprehend the necessity of having enemies and those against us in order that we might demonstrate this unhypocritical love. Look at the first verse, verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Let me ask you a question. Were we blessed as we persecuted Christ? What are you talking about? We were given life eternal. That's a tremendous, immeasurable, the greatest of all blessings, right? And God says, so if you want to worship me, 24-7, 365 days a year. These are some things that I need you, to, I urge you, he says, to allow them to be a part of your life. And I realize you're going to have to change the way that you think because this is completely contradictory to your flesh. Completely. If Christ is not in you, forget it. But because Christ is in you, these things can be manifested in your life as well. Namely, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. In other words, just because you did not curse them back doesn't mean you've gone the whole way that we're commanded to go. You can't go, ah, I caught that coming out of my mouth. Praise the Lord. Okay, keep going. You got one more step. Now bless them. And that doesn't mean, bless their soul, you didn't die today because I prevented myself from killing you. That's not what that means. It means to pray to God on their behalf that God might bless them. That's the context of the word. Those who persecute you, you fall on your knees and ask God to give them every benefit that He can possibly give them physically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally. God, pour your blessing on them. And you're like, that's impossible. Well, again, I'll take you to Calvary because I don't think it's impossible. It's only possible for Christ. But if you're born again, Christ is in you. Therefore, when they suffer you, your response is, God, please... As I prayed for my own family this morning that your hand of blessing might be upon them. Can I add one to my family? Let it be this one who has raised up against me. Would you bless them like I prayed this morning for my own? Would you bless them? Look at verse 17. Never, never pay back evil for evil to anyone Respect what is right in the sight of all men. 
Now, I tell you right now, respect doesn't cut it. The ESV has give thought what to do, which is super close. Let me break the word down for you. The root word is noeo, noeo, probably saying that with a southern accent. But it means careful thought or to consider. Then it's got a prefix, pro, P-R-O, in front of it, which means careful thought, consider beforehand. So here's the picture. They say they do what they do against you, and you call time out because you need to think. Before I respond, I'm going to think about this. Because there's something that I've been urged to do in response. And what I've been urged to do is to respond like my Savior. And what are we going to do? Well, how did Christ repay us? We're going to respond with good. Beloved, when you think about how Christ responded to us, if you'll notice, His character never changes. We rebel. We sin. We commit treason against His holy law. God's character remains the same. He's still holy. He's still good. And everything that He does is right. Why is it when someone raises up against us, do all of a sudden we come unraveled and become what we're not? Why does our character change? It's not supposed to. We're supposed to remain the same. Now, I realize we're like 400 level class here. But you do realize this is worship. This is unhypocritical love. Therefore, since God does not change, I'm not going to change. Since Christ responded with good, I'm going to respond with good. You could, Brother Joel, you'll be taken advantage of all the time. Okay. He, he was. He was. We were taking advantage of him while we were putting him to death, remember? Therefore, God doesn't change. We don't change. So we have to stop. I always used to, it drove me crazy working with Paige's dad. I'm, I go way too fast. I guess it's ADHD. I got three projects going at once. I don't do any of them well. And I'll start the fourth before I finish any of the other three. That was not him. One thing, slowly, methodically, until we're done. I'm like, they've got 12 other things to do. He's like, I got one thing to do. And so you better be careful when enemies come against you because you got one thing to do and you better figure it out. And it's going to take some thought because you're going to knee-jerk respond and you're going to get it wrong with that conformed mind of yours. But you've got the mind of Christ and you know through prayer and meditation and the study of God's Word, you can figure it out. I don't care if you've been born again a month ago or 50 years ago. It's there. You just got to stop and think, how am I to respond? Last thing, verse 19. Never, and it's just, we're just summarizing everything that we said. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it stands written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. 
Now, if you'll think with me about the conformed mind very quickly, I was going to give you guys a movie illustration because violence has reached a level on TV today that is unimaginable. But if you'll think about it, it's all almost all of it's done in revenge. When I think about all the shows that I, that I like, they're all revenge shows. Every one of them. Every Marvel movie, Taken, they're all about revenge. You did something to me, and I'm going to make you burn. And we're constantly fed that way of thinking. That's why you can't drive down the road anymore, right? It's all about revenge. It's all about payback. But God's like, no, 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 no. I know you're constantly being trained by that, but you need to be transformed by this. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. And then he mentions food and drink, but you do realize he's not speaking literally there. I mean, yeah, if they're hungry, give them something to eat. And if they're thirsty, go get them a glass of water. But he's saying, you take care of their needs as a neighbor. It doesn't matter what their needs are. You meet those needs. Rather than revenge, you put yourself in the position of a servant and serve and minister to them. Don't get revenge. That's mine and mine alone. You serve like I served you, right? What's this business about burning coals before my conclusion? Because that's, that's been all out there. Um, but it's an ancient illustration of causing somebody to feel shameful for what they've done to you. In other words, when somebody does something against you and you respond in love, if there's an ounce of humanity left in their soul, they're going to be ashamed. Now, if you respond evil for evil, they're not going to be ashamed. In fact, round two is about to begin, so strap on. But if you respond with the goodness of Christ and there's an ounce of humility left in their soul or humanity, they're going to be ashamed of what they've done to you because you didn't respond in that way. Last thought, verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with what? Good. That's what all this is about. This is a tremendous summary. And it's a tremendous danger. I mean, I'm thinking about putting my, a sign up in my woods, by the way. I get, I get tired of people trespassing and hunting. And so I'm thinking about putting warning. Coyote leg traps. I do have a few of them. But I think I'm just going to put them right by the farm, put up a few signs and go, enter at your own risk. Traps are everywhere. You know why he summarizes all this section in this way? Because this is a serious trap. There is serious danger in you not having genuine, unhypocritical love because of the way that you think and because of the way the world shapes your thinking. And he's like, guys, be careful. Don't be overcome by this. And while I was thinking about this this morning, I was reminded of Genesis 4-7. And listen to the grace of God as, as God speaks to Cain before he kills Abel. Sin is crouching at the door and it desire, its desire is for you, but you must master it. 
Here's your Cain statement. Before you act in a way that dishonors God, before you respond in a way that is hypocritical and unloving, God warns you, don't be overcome by these things. You always respond like my son did, with good. And you will worship me, and you will be a sacrifice that is found pleasing to me in all things. Let's pray.